You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. Uh, for those of you who are new, we like to try to take care of folks. If you get a little cold, we've got blankets that we can uh, share with you. Just kidding. In fact, there are just two or three pieces of shade around different places. You can uh, sneak in somewhere if you're really hot and feel like it will be unbearable. Well, I just wanted to mention, we have not mentioned this before. We're going to have a celebration of sorts uh, or uh, uh, an expression of gratitude of sorts in a week, uh, two weeks, week after next, for Chris and Benita, Pope and Morgan, Taylor, their daughter in New York. But uh, the three of them, Chris and Benita, will be moving to Tennessee this fall. He's going to become the athletic director at uh, Milligan College, where we have a few people, a few alum from Milligan. Go Buffs. Yeah, Buffaloes. Okay. All right, so, uh, but Chris will lead us in our communion on that day. And we just want to express our gratitude for his service as an elder, as the head of the missions team, men's ministry he did for a long time. And Benita is right in there with him with every single thing that he does. Um, but just wanted you to know, so you'll have an opportunity to wish Chris and Benita well between now and then. Um, tonight at 6.30 in the auditorium, we're going to have a panel on inerrancy, and, uh, which is the, the, the doctrine that Scripture is without error in the original autographs, in the original writings. Um, Ted McKinney, David Calvert, Drew Hansen, Burt Wallace, and I will be on the panel. I hope I haven't left anyone out, but we'd love for you to join us. We will have child care available uh, to talk about this important um, doctrine of Scripture and where does it fit and within the doctrine of inspiration and even the bigger doctrine of God. And There are a lot of things to think about. And ultimately the question is, is the Bible authoritative? Does God's Word have anything to say to us and throughout the ages? So I think you know what our answer will be, but how we get to that place and all the ancillary issues surrounding it we'll be discussing tonight and I, I do think you will be gr very glad that you came if you're able to come. Well this morning we are in Psalm 2 and if you've ever read Psalm 2 carefully you may think hmm wow I'm not, not really sure what to make of this? At the beginning of the psalm, it feels as if you're reading the opening pages of an account of World War I and World War II, the, the negotiations and the accusations that fly just before war breaks out. One king posturing against another king. The language in Psalm 2 is difficult for ears that are attuned to New Testament words of grace and peace and forgiveness of sins. Is it relevant today? 
I can assure you that it is. Today we're going to focus on Psalm 2, and next week we'll focus on Psalm 2 in the New Testament. You, you will be surprised, I'm guessing, with how prominent a place this psalm of power and judgment holds in the New Testament for those who know Jesus. There's much to cover in Psalm 2, so let's begin. If it's not too much trouble getting up and down from that chair, if you would, please stand for the reading of Scripture, and we're okay if you remain seated as Psalm 2 is read. By the way, you have this on your music sheet, and there are also notes that uh, go along with that if you have a music sheet inside your bulletin. <clears throat> Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their barns, bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord, or Yahweh, said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Again, those are just difficult words for us in these New Testament days. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly Kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. Psalm 2 does not have a title, nor is an author assigned to the text. But Peter said in Acts 4 that David wrote the psalm, and in Acts 13, Paul calls it the second psalm, or he identifies it as the second psalm. It begins with a question that David cannot believe that he needs to ask. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? We find ourselves as we enter Psalm 2 in the middle of a power struggle. And since the psalmist knows that this is not a real contest... He is incredulous that such a notion need be entertained. If you look at the balance of power in this world, just right now, if you look at the balance of power in this world, you may think that those who oppose God and his people are stronger than both God and his people. But the Holy Spirit, through David, will provide perspective that brings truth into focus. The Hebrew word for plot is haggah. It is the same word used in Psalm 1-2 for meditate. In Psalm 1, 
the psalmist meditates or the righteous one meditates on God's word or Yahweh's instruction day and night. Uh, as we, it was mentioned last week, this word is also translated as growl in a lion, as in a lion growls over his prey. Or it can be translated murmur or mutter. Eugene Peterson says the, that the one who meditates is lost in his religion. That's a great description, isn't it? The one who is meditating on the word is just lost in the word. Unfortunately, the rulers of the earth in Psalm 2 are lost in their fixed determination to attack the Lord's anointed. The Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach, which sounds not surprisingly like Messiah. In the Septuagint or the Greek version of the Old Testament, Mashiach is translated either Messias or Christos, which in English, or Messiah, or the cross. So you're getting the idea. He's talking about the Messiah. The readers of David's day understood each king from the line of David to be God's representative on earth, and in fact, God's son. He's the one who represents God's people. The whole nation of Israel was known as God's son. But we understand, obviously, that the Messiah is Jesus. Now for David and Solomon, th these two ruled over other small nations, but beyond Solomon, none of the rulers of Judah ruled over anybody else except the people that were in the midst of them. So many think that Psalm 2 was a coronation psalm whenever a new king was crowned. But even as they understood this new king coming into power, to be God's son, they also were looking for a Messiah who would throw off the bonds of any foreign captors and would rule over the entire earth. He would be a king like no other king, the Messiah. Now the New Testament writers make it clear that Jesus is the Messiah and I say is in present tense because he continues to be the Messiah to whom Psalm 2 and all other Old Testament prophecies pointed. So from this point forward, we will think of the schemers and rulers in Psalm 2 as not only those who opposed the nation of Israel in Old Testament times, but also as the rulers and the peoples who are opposed to Jesus in our time. And thus, by extension, those who are often opposed, not always, but sometimes, many times, those who are opposed to those who follow Jesus. Isn't it interesting in verse 3 that the very people who deny God's authority in their lives plot together to throw off the shackles that enslave them? Wait a minute. They don't, God has no authority over me. Let us throw off those shackles. They desire to dominate God even as they deny his very existence. It's time for God to respond, and so he does, with laughter. Do verses 4 through 6 bother you somehow? 
I mean, usually in contemporary depictions of power in literature, entertainment, the more powerful ruler who mocks those who are opposed to him or her with laughter is the bad guy. So I wonder who would be invested in that narrative, that the bad guy is the one who laughs at those who seek to overthrow him. If it bothers you that God laughs at those who plot to overthrow him, then I would submit that you do not know the depth of your own sin, nor the seriousness of rebellion against a holy creator, the creator of the universe. And when I say you, I mean we. I don't think any of us really understands the depth of our sin before the Lord. If you were a believer, I am sure there have been times when you have come face to face with the horror of your own sin. And it's not a pleasant place to be until the forgiveness of, of Christ begins to wash over you. So multiply those times when you feel so bad about your sin and those feelings of condemnation. Multiply that many times over for those who have not received God's mercy through Jesus. If they do not repent, the guilt may drive them to first secretly and then openly rebel against God. God's derisive laughter against the puny efforts of the rebels is bad enough. But it's when God stops laughing that those who oppose him should really be worried. It's kind of like, you know, if the elevator cable breaks, it's not the, the fall down to the floor that's the... Uh, the problem is the sudden stop at the bottom of the, of the elevator shaft. The then of verse 5 indicates a transition to his wrath. Because God, because Yahweh has set his king on Zion in Jerusalem. And the peoples have rejected him. In our time, that means they have rejected Jesus. Who is the center of scripture. Always read the scriptures Christologically. Jesus is the center of everything in the Bible. It's, it was always pointing to Jesus. It always will. So when someone says to you, I don't mind you speaking about God, but please quit talking about Jesus. And perhaps you should say to them, let's read Psalm 2 together. No, don't say that. That would not be a good idea at all. It is an indication that you need to pray with even more fervor, asking the Lord to soften your friend's heart, just as he softened your heart and led you to repent of your sins and trust Jesus' death on the cross as payment for your sins. It is amazing, is it not, when you think that God's holy wrath against sin, described so clearly in Psalm 2 and affirmed in the New Testament, led him to send his son, Jesus, to die for the very ones who were rebelling against him. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to Jerusalem where his Son, his holy king, was to reign over the earth 
to die in our place and absorb his wrath against sin, a wrath that is fully justified. If you do not know Jesus, it would be a good time to trust him because God's wrath against sin still exists and only those who are hidden in Jesus are safe. So far in Psalm 2, we have heard from David and from Yahweh, and now we hear from the Son, who the Old Testament saints would have understood to be the kings of Judah, particularly the Messiah who was to come. But we know that God's Son, referenced in verse 7, is Jesus. The New Testament book of Hebrews will make this understanding very clear for believers, as will Paul's sermon in Acts 13. And Peter will affirm this in Acts 4, where we'll spend most of our time next week in Acts 4. In Psalm 2.10, the rulers of the earth are told to be wise and to be warned. These are two staples of the wisdom literature in Scripture. Be wise, be warned. In this verse, Yahweh delivers a stern warning, but cradled in this warning is an invitation. The scripture, as always, says it best. Verses 10 to 12. <clears throat> now therefore, O kings, <clears throat> be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and kiss, or rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Think about Jesus, gentle Loving so much of the time, but then his wrath was quickly kindled in the temple when the marketers were selling animals at prices that extorted the people. His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Amen. Five points of application, beginning with. There are only two choices, life or destruction. Deal with it. This is not meant to be harsh, but rather clarifying. Can you imagine the things that we take for granted in this life? The number of times that someone might have said to you, deal with it. And you're just, hey, I want to deal with it. I like this way or that way. And I've got money, and I've got prestige, and I've got all these things. But you go almost any place in the world, and people say, Really? You're whining about that with everything that you have? So this is not meant to be harsh, but clarifying. Just, just get a sense of perspective. What if, what if the Bible is true? But I don't think the Bible is true, although I admit that it might be true. What if it is? One sure way to get to the place where you can deny God's existence, deny the truth of Scripture, deny that Jesus was God's Son, is God's Son, and the one with whom we must deal or the one with whom we must have to do, if he is, you want to deny that, then start at the culture and try to work your way back to God. But what if this is true? 
Everything else needs to be off the table and take a look and just see. The attacks on God, His Word, His Son, and His ways are no different today than when the rulers of the world plotted to defeat the kings of Judah. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, or if you're thinking about walking away, would you be willing to just take the rest of this month and read through the Gospel of John or the Book of Romans without the noise of the culture? Get off Twitter, get off Facebook, Instagram, everything. Quit going to your favorite sites. Just read it for one month. If, if there are two eternal destinations, eternal, if that is a slight possibility that that's true, just give it one month. If after this month you decide against Jesus, at least you gave it a shot. I'll be honest with you. I'm convinced that there are two eternal destinations, heaven and hell. If you choose against Jesus, although I will disagree with your decision and although I will continue from this platform to seek to persuade you, I will respect you, I will respect your decision and back off in our personal interactions. Second, you will be lost in your religion one way or the other. Choose wisely. If you are the one to whom the Holy Spirit was speaking in the first point, you might think I'm continuing this challenge. In a, in a sense, I am, but, but I'm speaking to all of us here, those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. Another way of saying this is that we will be religious about something or someone. We will, in fact, be lost in our religion as we meditate on God's word and God's son, or we will be lost in something that is inferior to Jesus at best and opposed to Jesus at worst, plotting against his rule. And it can look so good, so good, so beautiful, so compelling, persuasive. While it is surely acceptable to know the world and its ways at, at, at some level, at a pretty significant level you can. We all recognize the danger of investing too much time and emotional energy to thoughts and activities of those who oppose God. The Psalms will lead you to choose, if you are a believer, the Psalms will lead you to choose to contemplate and exalt Jesus. So, Lord, we give thanks to King David for this Holy Spirit-led warning in Psalm 2, which also serves as an invitation. Brothers and sisters, you will be lost in your religion one way or the other. Choose wisely. Third, it is futile to fight against God's redemptive plan. Exalt Jesus in your life and in the land. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. But oh well. It, it, it's tempting, is it not, to soften the message of Jesus' sacrificial death with its requirement for sinners to repent and trust Him for salvation. Why is this 
so difficult. Because those who oppose this message are often actively seeking to suppress and squash the message which in many places in the world and increasingly here means that they will seek to su suppress and squash the messengers who share the gospel. Those who are loudest, it's another one of those great ironies, those who are loudest in their calls for world peace often feel as though they must quiet the talk about the Prince of Peace before they can achieve their goals. Hear this, believer. To soften the gospel at any point, at any place, is to eliminate the true gospel. Just throw it out the window because it, it's not there anymore. If you seek to soften it so that you will be more accepted by the world. That doesn't mean just go in there guns blazing. You, you, surely you know that that's not what I'm suggesting that you do. But with the smile, with love, with overwhelming love for the people to whom you're talking, make sure that you give the whole gospel. I lived in Plumtree, North Carolina for 20 years, from 1978 to 1998. Our family enjoyed two and a half television channels for most of those years. Just about two years before we left, we bought one of those satellites that was half the size of our four-bedroom home. You know, it's just, it was right there in the front yard, too. Uh, fortunately, my front yard was a pasture. But there it was. But back in the early, late 70s or early 80s, I remember watching on NBC a week-long series called AD, AD or Anno Domini, In the Year of Our Lord. And the story followed the dual track of the Roman Empire and the spread of Christianity. Perhaps it was my imagination, but to, to me it felt like the produce, producers really wanted to talk about the Roman emperors. But the story of the spread of Christianity kept getting in the way. And the, and, and the story began to shift. You know, over time it shifted from Rome to the church. Now... If you had been alive in the first century, as an objective observer, suppose you, you're not a believer, but you're just looking, which do you think, of, which would you have predicted to survive? The Roman Empire or the straggly band of Christ followers whom the empire was absolutely committed to, to destroy by throwing them to lions and setting them aflame on crucifixes to light the way for those being entertained by the ones being thrown to the lions. And they would say, light of the world. Oh, yes, these Christians. So which would you have expected to survive, Rome or Christianity? Well, you know the answer if you had... You know what you should have said. If you had been an observer then and you said, well, I think the Roman Empire will go a lot longer than this little sect, this little Jewish sect that seems to have interested Gentiles, you would have been proven tragically wrong. So here's a question for our day. Which do you think will endure? One of the various political movements, one of the populist movements or social justice movements or Marxism or democracy, or the church, which do you think is going to survive? <laughs> Exalt Jesus in your life and in the land. Fourth, 
attacks on Yahweh's people are taken very seriously by Yahweh. Do not engage in such futile and dangerous practices. I don't have anything here about how we get along with one another and with other churches, but we ought to put that, add that to the mix. Even if you're a believer, and when you're just spending your time running down other believers, man, you're, you're in the danger zone. One of the key differences in Old Testament life and New Testament post-cross and resurrection life is that rather than mocking our opponents along with God, we are called to pray for and even bless our enemies, forgiving them as they stone us to death. I read Acts 7 this morning. Stephen, stoned to death. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Had a big impact on Saul, who was approving it and who became Paul. The rulers and the peoples of this world who plot, who meditate, who are lost in their religion to overcome Jesus, take our love and forgiveness as a sign of weakness. That's understandable. Now, you as a believer might be tempted to think that life is so unfair when you bless others and share the good news of life and all you receive is opposition. To you, the scriptures would say, resolve to follow Jesus' commands no matter the cost and take joy in the increased fellowship that is yours when you suffer well for Jesus. For those of you who do not know Jesus, if you must refuse his free offer of grace to you, then just in case this is true, would it not be wise at the, at, at the least to refrain from opposing Jesus and his followers? The father takes opposition to his son very seriously, and none of us wants to be in his crosshairs. We don't want that. Even though God saved the Apostle Paul and used him to bring the gospel to us in its clearest form, he never got over the fact that he used to persecute unbelievers. It, it led him to say, I'm the chief of all sinners. He never got over that. From this point forward, do not live with such regrets. Last of all, there is no refuge from the Lord. There is only refuge in Him. Kiss the Son and take refuge in Him. You will never know how reasonable the faith is until you believe. The Bible is reasonable. Christianity is reasonable, extremely so. But you cannot reason your way to faith. You must first believe. I know this seems backwards, but it's God's design and there's no way around it. God's message to you is this. Kiss the Son and take refuge in Him. Put your trust in Jesus and in Him alone. In the warning that is Psalm 2, an invitation is extended. And it's just as true the other way around. Within this invitation is a warning. Much is at stake. More, in fact, than when David wrote 
Psalm 2. As we move towards the Lord's table, I want to close with a verse from Hebrews 10 that describes the fate of those who reject Jesus. Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Wow, that's tough, isn't it? We got two options, though. Receive it or just go to Hebrews and cut it out. It's there. Let me read that one more time. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, has, he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? The wrath of God is just as true today as it was when David wrote Psalm 2. This need not be your lot. If you do not know Jesus, call out to him. He will save you. He will save you. He longs to save you. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Father, uh, on this day, where we have read these difficult <laughs> verses, and because they were in line, not because I said, oh, Psalm 2, but because it's second to the Psalms in this summer where we are looking at the Psalms. And many times we will be encouraged greatly. But this morning we receive from your hand this warning that is in Psalm 2. May our hearts be um, convicted to join together in prayer for those of uh, our loved ones who do not know Jesus. And if there are those here who do not know the Lord, this morning I pray that they will acknowledge their sin before you. As we come to this time at the table, we pray that your spirit would move in our hearts right now to bring this tremendous sense of gratitude to those of us who know Jesus and sense of conviction and relief in belief in Jesus' sacrifice for our behalf. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So what does it mean to kiss the sun? It means to pay homage to Jesus, to him. What does it mean to take refuge in him? It means to repent of your sins and believe in him. Believe what he did on the cross was payment for your sins. and That he died for you. For those who have put their trust in Jesus, it is time for us to gather at the Lord's table. If you do not have a... Um, Communion cup, would you please let uh, Neil know over here? We, maybe some from the back. Anyone that needs one, 
Okay, I think that's most of us. And you may want to go ahead and start tearing off that top little piece of uh, cellophane to get to the bread. At this table, we remember that Jesus shed his blood and gave his life as a sacrifice for us. Jesus traded his righteousness for our sin. And when we believe, we trade in our sin for his righteousness that is ours. He died so that we might live. And we invite all believers to join us at this table as we take communion together at our seats. In Mark 14, Jesus said, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Because of this act of Jesus that we remember today, we do not have to be the recipients of God's wrath, but rather the recipients of his amazing grace. We turn our lives to him. So I will pray for us and then we will partake. Father, we confess to you today our sins of omission, of commission. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, in deed. And our only hope of forgiveness is not that we can clean up our lives, but that we turn ourselves utterly over to you. And that we trust Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf as our forgiveness, the means to our forgiveness. And so as we partake of this bread that represents the body given for us, his life for ours, we bless you. And then as we drink the cup, we give thanks for the blood that was shed for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. And after blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Thank you, Lord, for the punishment that you took, the beatings when it should have been us. Thank you for taking our place. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. <laughs> and thank you, Jesus, for the blood that was spilled, without which there is no remission. We thank you for forgiving us. And we dedicate our hearts to you and to the message of the gospel until Jesus returns. We long for him to come this afternoon. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.